So as I said, we uh, had started a while ago as a church, a series called Dear Church. And it was on the seven letters uh, to Revelation. Uh, then we took a break for Christmas. Uh, Jeff covered some things called baggage. Uh, and then uh, he wanted to start the church collectively around uh, some discussions on prayer. So we just finished that up as well. Now we're going back to uh, the churches of Revelation because after this, we are now going to examine, uh, hopefully continuously, the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, so these churches' uh, letters kind of set that up uh, and then prepare us uh, for uh, listening to the rest of Revelation. I do feel compelled to say one thing, uh, and it's from what Jesus says. Uh, he says, um, to those whom I love. And I just feel initially to say, hey, Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves all of us. I say that because in the same sentence, he says, I reprove and I discipline those whom I love. And sometimes that's really difficult to hear, um, but that's what these letters do, is they actually provide correction to the church, provide introspection to the church, um, provide instruction and correction, um, but he does it because he loves us. And I know in today's church, generally, it can be unpopular because if things are going well, God loves us. If things don't go well, it must be I'm doing something wrong. But it could be reproof or discipline. And this letter is a very poignant letter that kind of talks about that specific to us. In one case, is maybe somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. And in another case, maybe who's somebody who does have a relationship with Jesus, but we may not be walking in a way that Jesus is calling to. So whatever the Spirit brings to you this morning, I pray that you remember, first of all, that Jesus loves you, and he's telling this so that we overcome. So that we overcome the world today, and we can prepare it for our King's coming later on. So I want us to remember that, because this is a pretty poignant letter, sometimes difficult to swallow, but I want us to start with that encouragement as we do. So we've covered uh, the seven churches uh, before, and you'll see on the map, you can see the kind of the churches spread around uh, the area there, uh, around the Aegean Sea. And today we're covering Laodicea, is the seventh church. So it's a reminder of Jesus, and I want to apologize if the, um, oh, these are my slides, okay, I don't have to apologize. So originally my slides didn't come in, but they looks like they did. So, um, but uh, it's a good reminder that King Jesus cares for us. And the reason I say King Jesus is because we're very familiar with Jesus as a suffering servant. We forget very much sometimes that he is a king sitting on a throne and that he is gonna come back uh, to us. And John tells us that he walks with the churches, meaning he cares about the churches, he walks amongst the churches, and Echo Lake Baptist Church is one of those churches. So what's true for those churches in that day? Jesus says, he who has an ear, let us hear because it's for churches today as well, as much as it is for churches in the future. So we're looking at these churches to understand what can we learn from his encouragement, from his abukes, and they're not just meant for those churches of that time. So just as a kind of reminder, uh, because it's been a little while, we looked at Ephesus. They were doing good works, but they lost their first love. They lost their relationship with Jesus. Uh, we looked at Smyrna, who was a poor church dealing with persecution, but Christ reminded them that they were rich in him. We looked at Pergamum, who held fast to his name, but denied the faith and were practicing a mixed religion, some sort of idolatry, mixing the world with their faith. 
And we looked at Thyatira who tolerated false teaching and Christ encouraged them to make sure that they were careful about what they allow people to teach. Be careful with false teachings. We looked at Sardis who was spiritually dead and Christ commanded them to wake up before it's too late. And we looked at Philadelphia who felt they had no influence, but God said, hey, I'm gonna open a door for you and you're gonna have a big impact. So that brings us to the last church that we're gonna explore, which I think is kind of a perfect letter for the wrap up of the churches. The first six churches, in many cases, they were either hot or they were cold. This is the one church that Jesus says, you're lukewarm. So he says, you're neither hot nor cold. But the idea here is it prepares us for revelation because we're understanding that as he says, be prepared and overcome, we can't afford to be lukewarm as believers. Especially as we study revelation down the road and think about what does that mean? When is Jesus coming back as king? So it's there to kind of prepare our hearts. And John says these churches are the things of which are, We study those first. And then he says, the rest of Revelation are those things that will take place after these churches. And that's what we're gonna study next. Ultimately, so we can be prepared and overcome. So what about Laodicea? So Laodicea comes from a term Laodiceo, which means ruled by the people, which is interesting um, because it seems as though the church, while it was ruled by the people, forgot that they needed to be ruled by God and became lukewarm. And it's easy uh, when you transpose things like that on America today and you look at the church today, it's easy to see that, that people forget God. If you think about the Israelites in the Old Testament, they were ruled by God as king, but they said, no, 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 we want a human king. We want our own king. So it's just an interesting concept. They're known as a merchant city for banking, shipping, wealth, wools, and dye. Today, Laodicea is completely in ruins. There's a small town next to it. Laodicea was destroyed, by, destroyed once by an earthquake, rebuilt, destroyed by earthquakes again, never rebuilt, right? It was the only church in these letters who was never commended for anything. There was nothing in this church that God said is good. But I wanna remind you again, and we'll read it a couple times, but God says, but I discipline those whom I love. I love you. And I want you to overcome and there's a reward for you. So he gives them hope, but he doesn't commend them for anything. So Jesus, at the beginning of each of these letters, he always shows up and has phrases and words to describe him. This one I think is important because of a church that is lukewarm. He says a couple things. He says, remember, I'm the beginning of creation. So he says, In verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So that's what Jesus says. And he's later on, he says, remember, I love you. And so I reprove you and discipline you. But what does that mean? So Jesus is the beginning of creation, right? He was there at the beginning of creation. He's involved in that beginning of creation with God and the Holy Spirit. He is the amen, That basically is, you could put it in the bank. The let it be. It is because I say so. It will be as I have said. It's the last word, the amen. And he's the faithful and true witness. So he's the one who shows the church the example of how to be faithful and true. 
and who to be faithful and true to. The faithful and true witness, Jesus, the amen. So I think that's important because again, this is a church that is lukewarm and commended for nothing. And as we look at these letters, we look at it in two ways. What does this mean for us as the church? But what does this mean for me individually as a Christian? And that's the second part that can be really tough sometimes. Jesus also says at the end of these seven letters, seven times he who has an ear, let him hear. He says it in every single letter. Do we have an ear this morning? But I would say it's not just an ear. He also says in several ways, do you have an ear and will you act in obedience? Five times he says, repent. Two times he says, be courage and stay steadfast. So it's not only having an ear, but it's an opportunity for obedience. So do we have action and faith and belief? And do we have obedience? Seven times throughout the letters, we hear not only Jesus say, listen to me, but also obey me. So again, it's encouragements and it's challenges to hear and obey and adjust, ultimately to overcome. Because remember, Jesus is setting us up for how, what does it mean when I come back as a king? The rest of Revelation. So we're gonna spend a little time on the reflection of the hard part of this is what is lukewarm? So he says in verse 15, he says, uh, Revelation chapter three, verse 15, he says, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I would that you are cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot, basically. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now the difficult part of that passage is that the literal term is vomit, right? So it's, it makes it even more, like some people like, if I say that to Doris, she even like visceral reaction to that, right? She's like, oh, that's gross. But the, the idea is, Tepid water, very disgusting. You know, when we, when we finish up here, we're gonna serve lukewarm coffee today, just so everybody feels, understands what that's like. But it's, the idea is that Jesus is spitting you out of your mouth. You are not doing the right things. I am casting you aside. But again, be encouraged. I love you, so I'm gonna reprove you and I want you to overcome. So the lukewarm piece is a little bit of the hard part. As a church, so you're okay to shout something out on this one. When, you, when, I think, when I say lukewarm, what is a similar word that comes to mind? Tepid. Tepid. Mediocre. What was it? Mediocre. Mediocre. What else? What is it? Apathetic. Apathetic. Thank you. Yes. So a lot of those words, so we use different words. Tepid, mediocre, uninspired, dispassionate, apathetic, unconcerned, flat. I didn't even know that Laodicean was a synonym for that until I looked it up. I've never actually heard anyone say it. Um, But you're being Laodicean or the church is Laodicean. I was like, oh, okay. Paul says it this way in Romans. He would call it lagging in diligence, not fervent in the spirit unwilling to serve the Lord. So he's not saying quite cold, but you're lagging in diligence, lagging in fervency, right? Elijah in 1 Kings put it this way with Israel. He said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? They were serving God, they said they were, 
and they were serving Baal at the same time, which was an idol at that time. And Elijah is kind of coming all these prophets up on the mountain and he has them right there. And he's saying to Israel, how long will you vacillate between two opinions? And what the answer was, was that no one answered him a word. They were lukewarm. They were apathetic. They were in the middle. So you can go back to the six churches and you can even think, well, geez, where were they hot or cold? Or where might the church today be lukewarm? So if you just look at it from a church context, if you look at Ephesus, um, are we lukewarm? Is the church lukewarm towards toil, towards enduring evil, towards growing weary, towards testing false prophets, even towards coming back our first love? Is the church lukewarm there? Is, for Smyrna, is the church lukewarm towards dealing with tribulation? Living amongst the poor, or even living with less than, or is it tolerating blasphemy or unwilling to understand suffering? Or like Pergamum, were they lukewarm towards the evil that was in the city? To lukewarm towards holding fast to Jesus' name, lukewarm to the idolatry and the immorality that was going on around them. Or Thyatira, were they lukewarm to love at the time because they were unwilling to show it? Or lukewarm to service? of others who needed perseverance or lukewarm to false teachings or lukewarm to those things being sacrificed or Sardis, uh, were they lukewarm to strengthening the deeds that were not completed or were they lukewarm to remembering the words of Jesus and not fulfilling them? So we can look at the other letters of the church and see where they were hot and cold and ask, are we a church where we're lukewarm? I would venture to say that there is actually, and I'm gonna throw out some data here, but there is actually today, there's, um, there's a lot of lukewarmness in the church universal in America, unfortunately, and not just America, right? But Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. But again, I'll remind you, I love you. Jesus loves you. So I want you to hear this. So now I wanna, that's, that's kind of how the church, we might look at other churches. I want us to look at our own view, our own discipleship, our own um, lukewarmness, if you, if you will. I just want to take our own time to consider that. And what I want you to consider as an example is, are, are we a stock market or are we a flat line? Now it's not a financial seminar, I'm not trying to say, hey, you need to go invest in the stock market. Please don't misconstrue my words or anything like that, especially if it doesn't look like so much like that right now. But I thought these were two very interesting ways to think about it. The stock market needs action. It needs cost. It needs investment. It moves forward, right? Yes, it moves forward, but it moves forward and back very much like the cost of discipleship. As opposed to the flatline here, now you may say, well, the flatline would be cold because they're flatlining. But the idea here is the flatline does nothing. It might've had a start, but then it does nothing. It's, not, it's static, there's no back and forth, it's tepid. So do we live cheap grace or costly discipleship? That's an introspection for ourselves and I'll unpack that a little bit because I think we all a lot of times 
can deal with this, but the idea is, are we moving forward and upward towards what, um, towards what Jesus would say, perfection? Be perfect as my father is perfect. Now, no one is saying that I'm perfect or you're perfect, but are we pursuing that perfection? That's the picture kind of of the stock market is, um, you know, no one is, is perfect. So there's going to be times when we have difficulty and we draw back and times when we move forward, but are we moving forward? And that's the picture that I'm asking for us. Um, A.W. Tozier, uh, a great author, actually love reading him, uh, author of The Crucified Life, has another term for lukewarmness. He calls it easy believism. Easy believism. Where we accept Jesus and we say, okay, we don't need anything else. Let's go get a soda. Like, that's awesome. I believe in Jesus. Let's go have lunch. And he's saying, no, we, he's saying, we are taught, unfortunately, and today we are taught to seek him, find him, and then seek him no more. As Jesus said, be perfect as my father is perfect. We are moving toward, we are to be moving towards God, not perfect, but pursuing, not holding on to the arrow, but letting it fly, not diving onto the top of the water, but deep down. Not the Israelites wandering in the desert, but taking hold of the promised land. The carnal man, as he says, he categorizes the carnal man as the one who believes in Jesus, but is not pursuing deeper holiness, is saved by grace, but does not seek the deeper crucified life. So the part of the letter is, is the church being lukewarm, but how are we in our own walk relative to that? It's explained the other ways in the Bible is the seed that is tossed on the ground and it grows up and it starts to grow and prosper, but then it gets pressed by life and withers. So the seed has accepted the word of God or accepted Jesus Christ and it gets pressed in around on life. Jesus talks about it extensively in Matthew when he talks about being ready for my coming. I would encourage you this week to go back and look at Matthew 20, chapters 24 and 25. Jesus is talking about this time that we're gonna be studying over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and he says in there, be ready. His example of lukewarmness is he uses the term readiness, be ready, right? You have to be the one who's ready on my return. Don't be like the virgins who run out of oil. Don't be like the person take caring of my house who is abusing my slaves when I return. Be ready and diligent. So Jesus, let's see why the church was lukewarm. So Jesus says in verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So it's really two possibilities here and there's a, a, a couple commentaries touch on it. They felt rich and secure because of either their physical wealth or because they thought they were spiritually healthy. One of the two. So they put all of their treasures, like I have a lot of stuff, I'm comfortable, I'm safe, things are fine. Uh, that is very much us in America, right? Um, or they say, no, oh, everything's fine, and I would, I'm gonna add a word here because I'm spiritual, healthy. I know Jesus, everything's good. That's what A.W. Tozer was saying when he was talking about easy believism. Yes, you can believe in Jesus, but there's also a life that he's calling you to. And that's what he's talking about here. 
So they felt rich and secure through physical wealth or spiritual wealth, but Jesus is in fact saying they're poor. Listen, I, I struggle with this. We're studying prayer as a church. I know 11 guys who I meet with on Wednesday night, all of them would raise their hand and say, I'm struggling with prayer. That's struggling with lukewarmness. Why? Because Jesus says, pray without ceasing. Right? I struggle with this because even when we do ministries, um, we, for those of you who don't know, we, we foster care. And I don't tell you that to toot my own horn, but I tell you that to say, even in the midst of knowing that caring for children is important, I get lukewarm. Because I say, this is hard. And this is costly. And it's difficult. And it changes my schedule. And it frustrates myself and my wife. But Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you're right. You, should, you know, don't, don't take care of those who need it. No, we have to remember that we have to press on to that. And that's something that I deal with in that, that I think many, many of us deal with. So I think the introspection today is not just the church, but us individually. Am I being lukewarm? Is there more of a call that Jesus is asking me to do as I pursue perfection? As Barna did a survey, um, a nationally representative sample of, a, of adults was asked the same question. Identify the top priority in your life. Only one out of every seven adults, 15%, placed their faith in God as the top, at the top of their list. To make an apples to apples comparison, the survey isolated those who attend Protestant churches and found that even amongst the segments of adults, not quite one out of every four, 23%, named their faith in God as their top priority in life. People groups under the age of 30 were even less than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if for those of you who don't know who he is, he was a, a pastor in Germany during World War II. He stood up against... Um, uh, Hitler's Nazism, as well as the German church, which became a Hitler Nazism church at the time. Um, and he was basically wrote one of his best books, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, and it was about their church, the church's lukewarm response to this thing that was happening in World War II Germany. And he called it cheap versus costly grace. Cheap grace is grace without a price, grace without a cost. Everything is paid in full and therefore everything can be had for nothing. Grace did it all for me, so I don't need to change my life, my lifestyle. Belief without obeying is cheap grace. God's grace costs us something. He paid it all and for that I'm willing to pay a cost to be his disciple with single-minded obedience. And he did pay it actually with his life. Um, speaking against a church that was willing to look the other way towards atrocities. So we may not understand this cost or be lukewarm to it, but again, according to the same study, this notion of personal holiness, this idea of pursuing perfection, the idea of that I believe in Jesus and Jesus loves me, he's my savior, and then I'm gonna enter into a discipleship with Jesus and walk my life in a different way. It is costly and 21% of adults consider themselves to be holy. Now, I know there could be lots of definitions and most of us are pretty humble and I would not even say holy. But by their own admission, large numbers have no idea what holiness means and only one out of every three believe that God expects them to become holy. 
the number one, one of the number one top plans on version this year was the cost of following self or Christ. People are wrestling with the same question. The number one loss for the Christian church in America is 43% of people saying they're Christians and practicing Christians, but are moving to no longer practicing Christians. So they're saying, I'm a Christian who's practicing. 43% are saying, I'm still a Christian, but I'm not practicing. It's moving towards lukewarmness. 35% have read the Bible in the last seven days. 14% said they do it daily. It's moving towards lukewarmness. So uh, this is a lot of introspection in this piece. Um, and this pastor, Chris, Chris Langham, that I listened to, he says, it's more likely today that people are apatheists than atheists. I thought it was an interesting point. So just a couple things for, our, for ourself, and then I want to get to the rewards. Indicators of a lukewarm Christian, these are things for us to think. And trust me, I've been thinking on these this week, so I don't bring this to you saying you this and you that. I bring this to you saying um, God is saying he loves us and he wants us to have a, a holiness and a perfection with him. So here's some indicators. When your spiritual life is joyless and apathetic, when you do not love and follow God as you once did, when you have at least one unconfessed sin that you refuse to repent of, when there's at least one person who's wronged you that you refuse to forgive, when the words of your mouth are displeasing and dishonorable to God and others, when you have time for entertainment, but not for Bible study and prayer, when you let pride, worry, or fear stop you from obeying what God has told you to do, when you enjoy viewing things or you become comfortable viewing things that you know are unholy and displeasing. When you know people have things against you but you make no effort to reconcile. When you're reluctant or casual in your giving or your worship. When you have to be begged to serve in the church. When you're unresponsive to neighbors and when you're blind to your spiritual condition and you don't think you really need to repent anything. Those are some pretty difficult things to swallow. But I want us to move to this, to the encouragement that I started with, that Jesus loves you and he loves the church and he's telling the same church to say overcome. He's saying, overcome because I love you. And yes, I need to course correct because I'm giving you loving reproof and discipline. So he says, half the letter is in him saying, I love you and please do this so that you can overcome. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcome and sat down with my father on the throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Half the letter is around encouragement 
to act in obedience, to listen and act in faith and obedience. So do we have the ear to hear? I think the best part of this to capture is this picture of Jesus knocking on your door. I referenced it in a previous letter. Do we listen and act in faith and obedience? And each one of these is obey me and you have this reward. Obey me and you have this reward. So yes, as difficult as it is for us today to go, okay, how is my, am I growing in holiness? Am I pursuing perfection? Am I doing these things? Jesus is saying, do you have ears to hear? He said, will you accept my love and reproof? He says, buy for me. So the whole idea of this buy for me is that we're not buying from the world. I think that's the interesting thing. Laodicea was buying from the world. A lot of these churches were buying from the world. But in this case, he's saying, be purified in me, a purified faith, be clothed in white garments, which is a salvation. Be righteous in me, have full salvation so that I can give you eyes salve so that you can see me and understand the Holy Spirit and have truth in scripture. And then he says, take my reproof because I love you. Reproof is a true charge against us. This is why it's important to know who Jesus is. He is the true and faithful witness. He's the amen. What he says is. So his reproof is a true charge against us, acknowledging it inwardly as the accused, even if we don't outwardly acknowledge it. He says, take my discipline. This is a term a lot of times used with children to instruct and help correct on the way. And Jesus says, my children, I wanna influence you in your conscious, in your moral and your spiritual way. He says, be zealous and repent. I said that in every single letter to the churches, he's asking them to repent or continue to be steadfast in suffering. He's asking us to do the same thing, repent or be steadfast in suffering. Maybe it's both. Zealous here is basically showing great energy or enthusiasm in the pursuit of what? In this case, in the pursuit of Jesus. Even in the pursuit of repenting, we are to be zealous in that, have great energy. And I was talking with someone yesterday and I was talking about repentance and there was no zealousness in pursuit of repentance. What it was, was I'm really frustrated that I got caught. And that's not repentance. That's lukewarmness. That's apathy because we regret the consequence. But Jesus has said, have enthusiasm to repent. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 thesis that he, that he knocked on, that he put on the door in Germany, the very first thesis is Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Day in, day out, repentance, growth, not cheap grace, but costly discipleship. And he calls us to hear his voice. The thing I love about this painting is there's no doorknob on the outside. So the, the, the gentleman who did the painting kind of talks through that. The idea here is that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. We have to open the door. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. So we have to act and listen in faith and open the door in obedience to buy from him, to take his reproof, to take his discipline. He's knocking at the door of our heart. If you have a relationship with Christ, 
then what he's doing is he's knocking at the door. He's asking for act and obedience and he's asking for us, don't be lukewarm in your relationship with me. Be zealous, be enthusiastic. I want you to overcome, accept my reproof and come after me. If we don't know Jesus, he's saying, he's probably knocking at the door of your heart and saying, here I am, accept me, buy from me. And ultimately he says, we have to keep the door open. So if you think back to the picture of the, of the stock market, a lot of times I know that we can get frustrated. We can open the door and close the door. We can open the door and close the door. Open the door and close the door. I got my job. My door is wide open. Thank you, Jesus. I lost my job. My door is closed. Uh, this is horrible. It's not what God wants. Um, I'm really in a really good relationship. Thank you. Open the door. Um, oh, I, I just lost a, a lot of money financially. I'm not ready for retirement. I'm going to close the door. No, open the door because what's the reward that we overcome so that we can be prepared for King Jesus's return. But also we get to do two great things. Come in so that he can dine with us. Come in so that he can dine with us and we are gonna sit on the throne with him. Every single one of the letters gives us a reward. So whether we look at those churches and we can say the church might be doing this or I might be struggling with this, every single one of those letters gives us a reward. In this case, he says, accept my reproof, open the door, act and obey in faith and obedience, overcome lukewarmness. Yes, you're the worst of the churches. I said in the beginning that I will spit you out of my mouth. But actually, if you open the door, I'll come in and dine and you'll sit with me on the throne. So even for this church, the grace that he provides is awesome. It's just not cheap. And remember what Paul says, he always uses the analogy of running the race. He says, you were running well, who hindered you? Let's not be hindered. Yes, it might be like the stock market up and back sometimes, a little frustration, but do what he says and finish the race. So in conclusion, again, be remembered, Jesus loves you. What is the Holy Spirit telling you? Reflect on that this week. And I have two questions. Is it cheap grace or costly discipleship? As someone who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, the question is, what will you do with that? Jesus Christ came, died, was crucified for you, rose again from the dead, I pray that it appeals to your conscience. What will you do with that? As a believer, you've already bought from Jesus. You may even be wearing the garment of white, the righteousness, uh, and you're, you, you've accepted him. But are you pursuing what A.W. Tozer called the crucified life? Not a cheap grace, but a costly grace. Sure, we may be saved, right? From what Revelation will say, the lake of fire or hell, but Jesus is calling us to pursue the door, open the door, hear the door and open it and pursue us and be perfect as the heavenly father has called us to be perfect. What shall we do as the believer with that? Consider those two questions. What shall I do with Jesus?